A warning. This episode features discussions of kidnapping, murder, child endangerment, gun violence, and assault. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. What can I add to a story that's been told too many times to count? It's a question I've asked myself over and over while examining one of history's most famous disappearances. A case that literally laid down the blueprint for the true crime genre. I think I ended up finding my answer. Because while everyone seems to know today's story, most people focus on the media frenzy and the wild theories. They gloss over how it inspired a law that still impacts Americans today and became entangled with the death penalty. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 20-month-old infant whose 1932 disappearance shocked a nation and left behind a long, complicated legacy. His name is Charles Lindbergh Jr. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. For those who are unfamiliar with today's story, don't worry. I'll catch you up on everything you need to know. Because to appreciate the impact of Charles Lindbergh Jr.'s disappearance, you need to understand the basics of what happened and why it was such a big deal. So much of it is wrapped up in his father's celebrity. So let's travel back to the peak of Charles Lindbergh Sr.'s fame, the late 1920s. America's on the brink of the Great Depression. The U.S. is reeling from widespread unemployment and debt. Kidnappings by gangsters, bootleggers, and organized crime gangs are on the rise. Amid so much chaos, Colonel Charles Lindbergh Sr. provides a bright spot for Americans. He's a world-class aviator, 
and one of the most famous men on the planet. He pioneered the first solo, non-stop, transatlantic flight and inspired an international interest in air travel. Think of him as the Elon Musk of his day. Brilliant, charismatic, and everything he does makes headlines. Americans love to read about his adventure and his personal life, so people rejoice when the eligible bachelor marries an ambassador's daughter, Anne Morrow, and marvel when the couple welcomes their first child in 1930, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby boy named after his father, Charles Lindbergh Jr. To prevent any confusion though, I'm gonna call him Buster, one of the nicknames Charles Sr. gave him. As a family, the Lindberghs enjoy most weekends at their remote mansion in New Jersey. By the time Buster turns one, he's already showing signs of fearlessness and independence. Charles hopes his son inherited his bold spirit, and if the games they play together are any indication, he did. Buster loves when Charles tosses him into the air. He then stretches out his arms and pretends to be a plane before falling back into his father's cradling embrace, crying out to do it again. At a glance, the Lindberghs have a perfect, balanced life. But there's one ugly aspect to Charles's career that doesn't make it into every history book. When weekends are over in New Jersey, the Lindberghs usually head back to Manhattan, where Charles works on a white supremacist eugenics project. It's disgusting work, reflective of his character, ethics, and this moment in time. In the 20s, anti-Semitism and Nazi support are on the rise in America. Nothing justifies Charles's participation in the project, but I wanted to mention it because for me, it serves as yet another reminder that we should all choose our heroes carefully. Those capable of incredible feats can be just as capable of monstrous actions. Of course, I can't blame a 20-month-old child for the sins of his father, and Charles's work doesn't play a major role in this story. Aside from the fact that he's on his way back from his work in Manhattan on Tuesday, March 1st, 1932. The evening Buster goes missing. It's cold windy and raining. Charles pulls into his driveway in New Jersey. Buster and Anne have been homesick with a cold. They hired their usual nurse Betty to take care of them while they're sick. When Charles walks inside, everything appears normal. Quiet. Anne's taking a bath. Betty says Buster's asleep. So Charles retreats to his study to read. Around 10 p.m., Betty checks the nursery and Buster's not in his crib. She looks everywhere for him, but as far as she can tell, the baby's gone. Betty races to tell Charles and Anne. Charles runs into his son's bedroom to check for himself. He finds an envelope on the windowsill. Inside, there's a message riddled with misspellings. It's a ransom note. The author claims Buster is still alive and demands $50,000 in specific bills. It includes these words. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. The child is in good care. Someone got into the house without anyone knowing. 
Outside, Charles finds a homemade wooden ladder with a broken side rail. He frantically calls the police to file a report. In no time, word reaches the press. The next morning, the kidnapping is all anyone can talk about. Headlines declare it the crime of the century, which is a phrase that can feel overused these days. But you can let us know what you think at the end of this episode. Newspaper sales in the United States increase by 20%. Americans everywhere can't get enough of the story. And not just because of Charles Sr.'s fame. Sure, there's a tabloid aspect to it, but there's also a feeling of shared pain. The Lindbergh case represents a much larger struggle. People around the country are finding it difficult to feed and care for their families. Many parents have been forced to surrender their children to public systems. Before the end of 1932, over 20,000 kids will end up in New York City orphanages alone. In no small way, Americans know what it's like to have a family ripped apart. And Lindbergh's case has the potential for a silver lining. Buster could still return home alive and well. So the public clings to that dream, and so does Charles. One day after the kidnapping, Charles watches the local New Jersey police search for Buster. But it's not just the police looking. Because of Charles's global fame, almost every government organization in America gets involved in the investigation. Even the Bureau of Internal Revenue, the agency in charge of collecting taxes, the Boy Scouts of America also lend a hand. Despite the support, official search efforts are disorganized from the start. Law enforcement doesn't have a standard protocol for how to look for a missing person or negotiate with a kidnapper. As for the FBI, they don't really exist in their modern form yet. In terms of best strategies, it's basically the Wild West. Everyone's just sort of winging it. So when night falls on day one and there are no results, Charles asks to take over the investigation. I'm not kidding. A pilot and the father of a kidnapped baby, a victim and potential suspect at this point, tells officials he should be in charge of the case. If he can fly around the world, he can find his son. And the cops let him do it. At this point, New Jersey state troopers mostly write speeding tickets. The police chief has no idea what to do. His officers don't have much, if any, experience with kidnappings. So officials actually depend on Charles's confidence to lead the way. And as you can imagine, things get out of hand fast. The next several months are filled with confusion and wild goose chases. The suspect list is enormous from the start. It practically includes every amateur gangster in the tri-state area and then some. Whether for attention or money, people everywhere come out of the woodwork to capitalize on the tragedy. A retired high school principal claims he's communicated with Buster's captors through newspaper ads. A bankrupt shipbuilder insists the kidnappers are keeping Buster on a boat off the coast of New Jersey. At one point, Charles even lets a bootlegger who claims to have information live in his house to help with negotiations. And those three examples are just the tip of the iceberg. Even the notorious gangster Al Capone gets involved, 
he falsely promises information in exchange for his release from jail. Before all is said and done, Charles shells out at least $50,000 to various people claiming to be Buster's kidnapper. But the Lindberghs don't get any closer to finding their son until almost three months after his disappearance. Then it happens. It's May 12, 1932. A truck driver's assistant named William Allen pulls over about two miles away from the Lindberghs' home. He's not a gawker or a paparazzi. He just needs to relieve himself. William walks to a private spot in the bushes, and when he looks down at the ground, he sees something peeking out from a pile of leaves. A baby's foot. It's Buster, and he's not breathing. Charles and his wife Anne are devastated by the death of their son, and so is the nation. It prompts questions like, if the rich and famous aren't immune to these types of horrors, who is? The system must be broken if it couldn't protect someone like Buster. So what needs to change? And this is the thread we're going to follow. But first, let me give you some context. In the early 1930s, state police handled almost anything that was classified as a crime. Kidnapping laws were also wildly inconsistent across the United States. For example, New Jersey classified it as a misdemeanor, while the death penalty was on the table in six other states. According to authors Paul and Sarah Robinson, these inconsistencies didn't matter so much when criminals couldn't easily flee across state lines. But in the 1930s, as automobiles became more accessible to everyone, that was no longer the case. Something like kidnapping could easily become a multi-state crime, or as the federal government saw it, their jurisdiction. So what happens? Amid all the public outrage around Buster's death, Congress legislates the Federal Kidnapping Act in June 1932. It's given the nickname the Lindbergh Law. The Lindbergh Law upgrades kidnapping to a federal crime anytime kidnappers cross state lines with their victim or victims, or anytime a child under the age of 12 goes missing, regardless of any movement. Any qualifying crime will be handled by federal agents from the Bureau of Investigation, the agency that will eventually become the FBI. The hope is this will eliminate miscommunication between local authorities. But the law has one more major impact. An amendment adds that if the victim of a kidnapping is harmed in any way, the abductor could receive the death penalty. Meanwhile, the feds work with New Jersey police to catch Buster's killer, a German carpenter named Bruno Richard Hauptmann. In September 1934, authorities find $14,000 in Hauptmann's possession. The bills match ones Charles Lindbergh once sent as a ransom payment. Hauptmann insists he received the cash from his deceased friend. But no one believes him. Then more proof comes to light. Officials find wood in his attic that matches the ladder found outside of Buster's room. A year later, at trial, Hauptmann asserts his innocence, but the public doesn't buy it. Crowds gather outside the courtroom, chanting, kill Hauptmann. There's enough evidence for a swift conviction. He's sentenced to death and dies by electrocution. 
Charles and Anne Lindbergh are satisfied that law enforcement caught the culprit. To escape the media frenzy, they spend the next few years in Europe. They have five more children, but never forget Buster. Meanwhile, in the States, politicians are glad the Lindbergh case is resolved. But as more years pass, some people wonder if Hauptmann really was the kidnapper. Theories crop up that his death, as well as the Federal Kidnapping Act, overcompensated for the Lindbergh investigation's initial failings. In 1931, there were 279 reported kidnappings in 501 cities. But the 1932 law was designed around just one. In the wake of a media firestorm, maybe Congress pushed it through without really considering the hundreds of other cases that came before it, or how it would impact the future. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Just months after Congress amends the Federal Kidnapping Act, also known as the Lindbergh Law, its principles are put to the test in a small town 16 miles away from the Texas-Oklahoma border, Paris, Texas. It's November 26, 1934, around 3 a.m. Police officers Newt Baker and Tut Marks patrol Paris's main street in an unmarked car. At a local gas station, Newt spots a car with Arkansas plates and gets a sense that something's wrong. There's no reason. It's mostly Newt's intuition after 12 years on the force. But the car has mud splattered across its body and a flat tire, being repaired by an attendant. Newt tells his partner Tut that he thinks the car may be on the run, driving fast down back roads. Tut agrees to go check things out. Newt and Tut pull into the gas station and approach the two 20-something men driving the car. Then, when the officers asked what happened to the vehicle, the conversation quickly escalates into a brawl. Newt draws his gun, but one of the men pushes him into a glass display case. The collision leaves him with a large gash on his left hip. With Newt and Tut both hurt, the two other men seize the officers' guns and overpower them. They force the cops into the back of their patrol car at gunpoint transfer all of their stuff into the front seat, then speed off. The captors' names are Arthur Gooch and Ambrose Nix. They escaped from an Oklahoma prison about a month earlier. They stole a car and fled to Texas, but ended up getting a flat tire, which is why they had to stop. They're now driving back to Oklahoma with the two captive police officers. Newt and Tut are injured, bleeding, and scared. By sunrise, they arrive in Oklahoma and stop at an unknown location. The officers are left in the backseat of the car, but never unattended. Arthur and Ambrose take turns holding them at gunpoint, making sure they don't escape. Arthur only takes a break to bandage Newt's hip wound. It's an unexpectedly kind gesture from the kidnapper, but as he works, Arthur remains gruff. 
He tells Newt, I don't give a damn if you bleed to death. When night falls, the escapees hit the road again. The officers are still in the back seat, but now they're heading north to a remote town called Snow. Around 10 p.m., they stop in the middle of the woods. Arthur and Ambrose hand the officers flashlights and, at gunpoint, order them to walk into the pitch-black forest. Newt and Tut are sure their captors are planning to shoot them in the back as they walk away. With every step, they wonder when the bullets will come. But they never do. A few minutes later, they hear their patrol car drive off. Around 3.30 a.m., a full 24 hours after their abduction, Newt and Tut arrive in a nearby town and call their colleagues for help. Their police chief picks them up and drives them back to Texas. A few weeks later, some Oklahoma cops who are investigating an unrelated crime catch up to Arthur and Ambrose. In a heated gunfight, Ambrose is fatally shot. Arthur survives, and police take him into custody. In February 1935, Arthur Gooch becomes the first person indicted under the amended Federal Kidnapping Act. As stated in the law, he crossed Oklahoma and Texas state lines with his captives. But there's a catch. Ambrose and Arthur released Newt and Tut alive and mostly unharmed, aside from the cut on Newt's left hip. Still, a few months later, a jury finds Arthur guilty of kidnapping and injury by force. They hand him a death sentence. Afterward, many Americans wonder if the ruling was too harsh whether kidnapping on its own should receive the same sentence as kidnapping and murder. It's a complicated question, but one that's definitely worth asking, especially when human lives are at stake. When written, the law didn't take into account degrees of harm. It simply states, quote, any person who shall have been unlawfully seized, confined, inveigled, decoyed, kidnapped, abducted, or carried away by any means whatsoever, and held for ransom or reward or otherwise, except in the case of a minor by a parent thereof shall, upon conviction, be punished by death if the verdict of the jury shall so recommend. After his sentencing, Arthur Gooch's lawyers appealed the decision. They argue the Federal Kidnapping Act didn't apply to their clients' crimes for several reasons. First, while Arthur did kidnap two cops, he never asked for a reward or ransom, as stated in the legislation. Second, the officers approached their clients on the night of the abduction without a warrant or probable cause. And third, Arthur didn't cause the wound on Newt's hip. Ambrose did but the judges shoot down each argument, underscoring the catch-all phrasing or otherwise in the law's language. By their ruling, a minor injury inflicted by another person can allow a person to receive the death penalty. Eventually, the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, but the decision doesn't change. On June 19, 1936, two months after Bruno Richard Hauptmann, Arthur Gooch is executed. Doubt in the efficacy and ethics of the law persist, even as many other kidnappers are caught and sentenced to die. 
for decades, courts and juries debate if the degree of harm to the victims should impact sentencing. But nothing comes of the conversations until the 1960s. As the civil rights movement picks up, the ACLU and the NAACP speak out against the death penalty, saying it violates the Eighth Amendment, which bans cruel and unusual punishment. Protesters take to the streets. In 1968, the Supreme Court reverses their prior ruling. They announce the death penalty under the Federal Kidnapping Act is unconstitutional when it only applies to kidnapping. The decision comes 32 years too late for Arthur Gooch. And while the clarification draws a clear line between kidnapping and kidnapping and murder, it leaves the spectrum in between open to interpretation. Decades later, US courts are faced with a question no one expects. What if the manner of kidnapping kills someone other than the abducted? In January 1996, nine-year-old Amber Hagerman is abducted and murdered in Arlington, Texas. Police recover her body four days later, but her assailant is never found. Her death inspires the creation of a national system to make the public aware of missing children as early as possible, hopefully before it's too late. It eventually bears her name, the Amber Alert. I covered Amber's case recently on my other podcast, Voices for Justice. I really encourage you to listen to learn more about Amber's complicated legacy and how she's overshadowed by the success of a system that came at the cost of her life. It really just breaks my heart that Amber has helped so many children come home, but her case remains unsolved. But the system works so well that by 2003, the federal government pitches in funding to help all 50 states adopt the framework. Within its first few years, the initiative helps locate 179 missing children, a number that accounts for a staggering 84% of all recovered missing kids. The program goes on to provide details about missing children via radio, highway road signs, and text messages. But in 2004, Amber Alerts and the Federal Kidnapping Act become the center of a complicated and violent crime. It's December 2004. Bobby Jo Stinnett is eight months pregnant with her first child, a girl. She and her husband live in Skidmore, a small town in Missouri. They run a business breeding dogs. They specialize in rat terriers, mid-sized dogs that share many of Bobby Joe's qualities, affectionate, easygoing, and kind. On Thursday, December 16th, Bobby Joe meets with some potential clients at her house. Around 3 p.m., the 23-year-old mom-to-be is supposed to pick up her mother from work. Bobby Joe never shows. Her mother, Becky, walks over to her daughter's house to see if everything's okay. When she arrives, the front door is wide open and there's no sign of Bobby Joe. Then, Becky checks a back bedroom Bobby Joe uses for puppy kennels. Becky screams in horror at the scene inside. I won't be describing it in any great detail, but warning, some listeners may still want to skip ahead a bit. Becky finds Bobby Joe sprawled out on the floor, 
with her abdomen cut open and her unborn baby gone. When they arrive, paramedics try to revive Bobby Joe, but she's already dead. Someone strangled her before removing the child. With clear protocols in place, the investigation moves much faster than the Lindbergh case did back in 1932. The FBI works with local police, and investigators quickly decide Bobby Joe likely knew her killer. There are no signs of forced entry in her home. Without a clear suspect, authorities concentrate on finding the child. At first, there's debate about whether the case qualifies for an Amber Alert, because technically, even after eight months of gestation, the baby was never officially born. But ultimately, officials decide it doesn't matter. Though the circumstances are wildly different, women have C-sections at eight months relatively frequently. Bobby Joe's child could still be alive, so it's worth using every tool at their disposal. The next day, the Amber Alert goes out. News of Bobby Joe's missing baby reaches all of Missouri and the surrounding states. Tip lines are flooded with leads, including one from an online dog breeding forum. Bobby Joe was a member. Someone calls to report the last post Bobby Joe ever wrote, dated the day before her death. She gave directions to her house, to a woman named Darlene Fisher. Darlene becomes the FBI's prime suspect, but authorities ask around and no one has heard of her, so agents assume the name is an online pseudonym. They dig deeper into the message board archives and learn that each post displays the poster's IP address. Turns out, Darlene's IP address belongs to a man named Kevin Montgomery, who lives 170 miles away in Melbourne, Kansas. Around the same time as officials learn this information, an anonymous tipster calls to report that someone they know in Kansas has been showing off their new baby. And they were never pregnant. It's Kevin's wife, Lisa Montgomery. As far as the FBI is concerned, Lisa or Kevin could be Darlene. Later that day, agents descend on their home. After Kevin lets them in, they find Lisa sitting on the couch holding a baby as the television displays the Amber Alert for Bobby Joe's missing child. The FBI agents arrest Lisa, and shortly after, she confesses to her crimes. According to her, she initially joined the online community for fun. She loved dogs, but she was going through a custody battle with her ex-husband at the time, and he was planning to expose her for faking pregnancies. Apparently, throughout their marriage and after, this happened several times. Of course, for obvious reasons, she couldn't give birth. So, to keep her lie alive, she claimed she kept having miscarriages. Her problem became her ex-husband knew better. Lisa received tubal ligation surgery while they were married, and he planned to expose her for perjury at the next hearing. Desperate, Lisa decided she needed to produce a real baby in a matter of weeks or lose custody of her kids. So she logged online, arranged a meeting with Bobby Joe, and we know what happened next. The gruesome and twisted nature of the crime attracts a flurry of media attention. In January 2005, Lisa is charged under the Federal Kidnapping Act 
and charged with kidnapping that resulted in death. Bobby Joes, not the abducted child. Under the Lindbergh Law, the Attorney General allows the pursuit of the death penalty. A lot of people weigh in. In a scathing New York Post op-ed, columnist Andrea Pizer says she believes there is no punishment severe enough to fit the crime. Others are struck with sympathy for Lisa's backstory and won over by the defense's wild argument that she somehow experienced psychological delusions associated with being pregnant. In the end, the evidence against Lisa is too overwhelming. She's convicted and sentenced to die. For years, Lisa's lawyers appealed the decision. They claim she suffers from multiple mental illnesses including post-traumatic stress disorder that stems from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse she experienced as a child, a defense that, if true, should have been included in the first trial, but wasn't. Their appeals ultimately fail, and more than a decade after her crimes, Lisa dies by lethal injection, becoming the first woman to be executed by the federal government in 67 years. The case doesn't alter the Federal Kidnapping Act, but it does set a new precedent. And two years after Bobby Joe Stinnett's murder in 2006, new legislation responding to a rise in child abductions by internet predators prompts Congress to add another clause. It states that if a kidnapper purchases goods from out of state to assist in their crime, it's a federal offense, under federal jurisdiction, and punishable by death. As of this recording, the Federal Kidnapping Act hasn't changed since, but scholars have argued that this addition is just as open to interpretation as the original legislation. Now, I'm not here to tell you how to feel about the decisions in any of these cases. I chose to tell Charles Lindbergh Jr.'s disappearance and abduction this way simply because, so often in true crime, we focus on the crime itself and the lead-up to the verdict if there is one. Whatever sentencing happens is usually just the final period at the end of the story. We forget that laws have their own backstory that are worth considering from time to time. Because if we don't, we allow a room full of legislators responding to one crime in 1932 to reach through time and affect people living here and now. A room full of people who couldn't possibly have predicted all the ways their words would be interpreted or used. So it's up to us to watch our laws as they get tested over time, and make sure they continue to reflect the complexity and nuance of the crimes they seek to punish. Next episode. In 2005, a district attorney disappears, and the computer hard drive that could hold answers is destroyed. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. 
You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Maggie and Meyer and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Anya Bayerly and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.